We're in the book of Ephesians. We return there to a book in the New Testament written by an apostle, a, an appointed man, a messenger of Christ, the Apostle Paul. He wants us to know doctrine, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Scripture, all the doctrines really summarized in chapters 1 through 3. And he wants us to live it out, chapters 4 through 6. He wants us to not just be able to teach a theology lesson to someone, but to actually practice it, to do it, to be doers of the Word. So we're beginning this morning in chapter 5. Chapter 5, we started a new chapter here, and I just want to read the, the first five verses to you. And we're looking at walk in love as the theme, as the point, as the idea of this text. Walk in love. And therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed, must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness, or silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now that we've been redeemed, now that we're justified in Christ, now that we've been saved, the question should always be, how should we live? How should we now live? If you go out and ask different people in the world, they'll give you their opinions. They might give you their religious beliefs. How you should live. Or maybe they might say, here's how you should live to be a moral person or a good person. Sadly, if you ask many Christians, how should we live as Christians? They will give you an unbiblical answer, a wrong answer, a worldly answer. And it's almost as if many would just say, however you want. How should you live? However you want. God has approved you. God has put a stamp upon you. He saved you. Now go on as if you've always gone on in your life. That's not a good enough answer for us. We need to go to God's Word. I was just speaking to a brother before the service about how people have all these different views. Teachers, false teachers even, have different views. But what matters is what Scripture says. What matters is what the Bible says. And you would think a question like, how should we live as Christians, would be in the Bible. In fact, that's one of the major messages of the Bible. There's two main themes of the whole Bible and they connect together. You know what those are? How can I be saved? That's the thread that weaves all the way throughout the gospel. And how can I live a holy life before God now that I am saved? That's why the epistles were written. That's why the letters of Paul, Peter, James, Jude, that's why they were written. So that we might know how to live a holy life, a godly life, a life like Christ wants us to live. What's the point that Paul's making here? He's saying that life is a life of love. It's a life where we walk in love. We live a lifestyle that is in love. Love towards others. And of course, love towards God. Many people today think love is whatever you want it to be. How should we live a life of love? Many might say, do what you want. Do what you love. Love is whatever you make of it. Love is affirming whatever the other person wants to do, even if it's a sinful lifestyle. Well, the word walk in Scripture, particularly in Paul's writing and in Ephesians here, walk means to live a lifestyle, how you conduct yourself in everyday life. It's not that moment you sin. That's not how you walk. But as a Christian, how you walk is your everyday life. And even as an unbelieving pagan out in the world today, how a person lives is their walk. What's your lifestyle like? Paul's already introduced this topic of walking to us back in chapter 4, verse 1. 
He said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. The calling which God has called you. The effectual calling. The call to salvation. The change in your heart. The regeneration that He's worked inside your heart so that you would come to Christ. What kind of calling is that? Well, He goes on to say that we're to be unified in the local church. He's really focusing on our relationships in the church. We ought to be unified around the doctrines of the Christian faith. And we ought to walk in such a way that we're unified in serving one another. Use your spiritual gifts to serve one another. And that is living out your calling that God has called you. In chapter 4, verse 17, he said, Don't walk as the pagans walk. You're supposed to walk in the way that God has called you, not in the way that the world is trying to call you back to the unbelieving lifestyle. Here in chapter 5, he says, walk in love. The the Apostle Paul here wanted the Ephesians to live a Christian life immersed in love. He wants them to be immersed in love, the love of Christ. And he wants them to abstain from the sinful practices of the world. That's really the summary of these five verses. And so the main idea of my sermon today The reason that I'm preaching this to you is not only because it's there. You know, i got to preach the next paragraph. That's expository preaching. But I really want you to see that you must live in such a way that resembles Christ. Christ Christ-like love. And that means abstaining from the sins that Paul lists here. The sins that so pull us. The sins that try to get us to go back into many of the things we did as unbelievers. I want you to focus on how to live a life like Christ wants you to live. I want you to focus on what this passage teaches us about your everyday life and how how even to battle the temptations that are coming at you. You've got to cut yourself off from those. You have to cut yourself off from the sins that he lists here because they're very, very serious sins. You know, every sin is serious, right? There's no sin that is pleasing to the Lord. But there are certain sins that he calls out. Certain things that we do with our bodies and our minds that the Bible focuses in on. Certain sins that the world loves to put in front of you. That Satan wants to put on a little hook right in front of you to see if you'll grab it. That's what Paul's getting at here. How do we walk in such a manner that we're living with Christ-like love? So he sets forth three requirements. There's three requirements. Not, don't think of requirements as in, I've got to do one, two, three, and I'll be saved. This is for the Christian. It's for the person who's already got a regenerate heart. Now what do I do? Well, Paul summarizes it in three things here. Number one, to walk in love means that you follow the Son. You've got to follow the Son. To live a, a life of sacrificial love means that we're going to walk in the steps of God the Son. We're going to walk as He walked. We're going to live as He lived. We're going to pursue Christ-likeness. We're going to pursue godliness. We're really talking about sanctification. The doctrine of how to grow in godliness. Paul starts off by saying, Therefore, therefore, based on everything I just said in chapter 4, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. It's a very simple command. Difficult, but God has given us the power to do it. Imitate Him. Copy Him. Be a copier of God. When my kids try to copy what I say, that can be good or that can be bad. When my children try to copy how I live, that can be good, that can be bad. But if we copy what God, the perfect God, the holy God, the righteous God, is doing, has done, and will always do, then we're in the right. We're doing the right thing. We cannot mess up if we follow God. And so Paul just starts off by saying, imitate God. Who should Christians be like? Should we make up an example of God? Sometimes you hear people say, I like to think of God as such and such. Or my God would never be like you say he is. Be imitators of God. How do we know about God? Through the study of Scripture. Through theology. Theology means the study of God. That's what the word means at its root. To study God in the Scriptures. 
as God has revealed himself to us. That's, that's why Peter said, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior because it is written, it's written in the Old Testament, you shall be holy for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15. Be like God, he's saying. Be like God, the one who saved you, God the Father. This is the great calling of a Christian. You've been justified. Now become more and more like God himself. Become more and more like the God revealed in Scripture. He revealed himself to us in his word through his Son. We'll come to the Son. But be like God. The whole Bible speaks of God. From the first sentence to the last sentence of the Bible. I mean, what a reason to know your Bible better. You can't be like someone if you don't know them. If I say, be like my father. You better be like my father, my earthly father. Well, you don't know my earthly father. You can't be like him. If I say to you, be like God, you've got to know God. Seems like there was a famous book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer who just passed away. You got, you got to get a book like that and, and learn more about God. Of course, Scripture is our main reference. But other books and preachers and teachers can help us point to certain Scriptures. It's called sanctification. Continual growth in holiness throughout the Christian life to be more like God. And Paul says, as beloved children, we're to do this, we're to follow our Father as beloved children. Through faith alone and Christ alone, you've been adopted. If you're a Christian today, you've been adopted. You're on the market for sale. You are a, a slave to sin. You are a slave to Satan. You are a slave to the world when God saved you. And now you've been adopted. He's bought you. He's paid for you. He's put you in his family. You're one of his children. Paul covered this back in chapter 1 of Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us. He marked believers out. Those who would believe. The elect, he's marked them out. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. He brought us into the family. And in ancient times, bringing you into the family is to give you all the rights and the inheritance. Especially the inheritance. So if a wealthy person adopted you, you got an inheritance. And many times they would adopt older men you know, men in their 50s and 60s would adopt a, maybe a man in his 20s or 30s because he didn't have a son to pass on the wealth to. And he calls us beloved children. We're not just adopted, but we're beloved. Not just children, but beloved children. The idea is here is that each believer is like the only child that a couple would have. The one and only beloved child. This couple's tried to have a child for so long in ancient times. They prayed to God. They finally have a child. And now those parents are going to give them everything. Not to spoil them, but all the love that they have to this one child. That's the way God sees us. God has many children, of course. All believers are God's children, but each one of us is especially loved by God. We're beloved. And because of that, we're supposed to follow God in his footsteps. A child follows his father. He should. The father is good and Godly, Christ-like, like a little boy who walks in his father's footsteps. A little boy who walks in the father's footsteps in the snow. Here we have Paul telling us, we're children, follow the father. That's what we should be like. And he goes on in verse 2 to say, walk in love. It's really parallel to what he's already said. This is not a new command. This whole section is about walking in love. Be imitators of God, now walk in love. It's the same thing. This is specifically what it means to imitate God. How do we imitate God? Be holy, yes. Righteous, yes. But walk in love. Do so in a way that you're exhibiting love. Not the love that the world says is love. Remember, the world will tell you what you want to hear. The world tells you what they want to hear. No, Walk in the kind of love that's described in Scripture. We can be like God in His sacrificial love. We can't be like God in His perfect knowledge. 
You can't be everywhere in the universe like God is. That's not what Paul means when he says be like God. He means be like God in his sacrificial love. And the idea of being in love is not an emotion. It's not like you, you fall in love. It's not Disney love. But it's in the sphere of love, in the realm of love. You're, you're totally submerged in the love of Christ. And you're living that out. Like a swimming pool where you dive in and you're, you're totally surrounded by water. You're in the water. To be in love, to walk in love, is to be in the love of Christ. It's to be in Christ. It's to live that out in your life towards others, particularly in the church setting. It's just assumed we're going to be like that to the world. You should care for your neighbor. You should love your neighbor. But here Paul's saying, in the church, of all places, you need to walk in love. This is the way our life should be summarized. Have a love for God. Have a love for family. Have a love for our children. Have a love for the local church. Just love Christians everywhere. That's a mark of a Christian, isn't it? Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself. And who are your closest neighbors in here? The members of this church. Walk in love. Specifically with other believers. Love others enough to serve them sacrificially and not commit sin against them. He's going to get into the sins, but committing a sin against somebody is the opposite of love. When you sin against your spouse, when you sin, by the way, that's your closest neighbor. When you sin against other people in the church, that's the opposite of love. That's actually showing hate, even if it's for a moment. What's the comparison? How can Paul open this up better so we can understand it? Just as Christ also loved you. He's the example. Be like God, and we can read of God in the Scripture. But you can't see God. No one has seen God at any time. You can't see the Father. You can't look at how the Father would live an earthly life. But you can look at the Son. You can look at how Jesus lived. You can see in the Gospels how He lived. You can read in the epistles that point back to the Gospels how Christ lived. We need to live like Christ. We need to love like Christ just as He loved you. To imitate God means to follow Christ as He Himself walked. Didn't Jesus love his disciples? Didn't he model for them exactly how they should live? Wasn't that one of the purposes that he was here for three years? He could have come and one day and died on the cross. He needed to live a righteous life before them for many reasons. To fulfill all righteousness, he says, but to show them how to live a godly life. It can be done. Christ, of course, being perfect, did it perfectly. And John says in his gospel, John 13, that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And it's not the end of his life there. It's the end, the uttermost, the complete, full, all that he could do to love them. He did it. He paid it with his life. In other words, just as Christ loved you, copy his way of life, Paul says. When he was upon the earth, You can read about that. You can study that. You can see. What does he mean when he teaches his disciples in the gospel account? I need to live like that because that's love. He told them. He told them specifically to follow that pattern. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. Even as I've loved you, he says, that's what you're supposed to do is to love one another. John 13, 34. 1 John 3.16, we know this, John says, because John was there. John saw Christ. He watched Christ. He learned from Christ. John says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. What's the ultimate example of love? That he gave his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Some of us don't want to do the most basic things for another person. Christ is saying, You've got to lay down your life for the brethren. You've got to sacrifice to to such an extent that it's as if you're laying down your life. 
And so Paul goes on in Ephesians here, and he gives that example. And he gave himself up for us. Really, the whole book of Hebrews is about that. How Christ was the once and for all sacrifice. That he gave himself for us. That he is our high priest. That he is our mediator. That he is our sacrifice. And it says that Christ came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He took our place. He took our place. If you're in Christ, he took your place. You deserve to go to hell forever and ever. And he paid the price on the cross. He gave himself up for us, in the place of us, literally on behalf of us in the Greek here. Speaking of substitutionary atonement. Atonement. He gave himself as an atoning sacrifice. And it was a substitute, meaning he took your place. You deserved that condemnation and wrath. And he took your place. Not that he went to hell for eternity for you, but he took all the wrath that you deserved. He took that on the cross. And that three hours of darkness, he took that for you. Don't you think we could love one another? Doesn't that seem rather basic compared to taking the wrath of God for all of your sin? This was the ultimate act of love. Even though he he knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf. He took on our sin, is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is saying. Not that he became the idea of sin or anything, but he took on sin. Why? So that we might have his righteousness. The righteousness of God in him. We are made righteous and Christ takes away our sin. It's the best deal ever in history. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. He lived a perfect, righteous life, and we get that imputed to us, and our sin gets imputed to him. What an act of love. That's amazing. That's the gospel. And yet we have problems just helping out someone in our family, someone in the church, our neighbors. Wow, look at Christ as the example. He was an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The offering means that he freely gave of himself, as you would bring an Old Testament offering in Leviticus. Whether it be a grain offering or an animal offering, you brought it up to the temple, you came to give it to God. Christ gave himself to God for us. He was also a sacrifice, a bloody sacrifice as well, like the animals that were slaughtered. Day after day after day in the temple, slaughtered, so that God passed over the sins of Israel until the appointed time that Christ would come and die on the cross as the once for all sacrifice. He's an offering and he's a sacrifice. And what does it say? As a fragrant aroma. You know what that means? Fragrant aroma? That means God accepted the sacrifice. Just because you went up to the temple, Just because you slit the animal's throat, gave him to the priest to cut up and put on the altar and burn, doesn't mean it was accepted. You could have the wrong heart. God says a lot about that in the Old Testament. He says, I don't care about your sacrifices if you don't have a heart that loves me. But Jesus gave of himself and it was accepted. It was a a fragrant aroma. When God accepted a sacrifice in Leviticus, it says that it's a fragrant aroma to him. It's pleasing to him. It's pleasing to God. It was pleasing to the Father that the Son would be crushed for us. That was God's plan, and He accepted the sacrifice. It was accepted by God, so we can know that it's effective. It paid for the sins of God's elect. It paid for the sins of God's elect. It was perfect. It was a fragrant aroma to God. How do we live like Christ? Well, we give of ourselves sacrificially. We follow the Son. We watch what He did, and that's what we do. We don't need to look at the world. We don't need to look at even a friend. Maybe the friend is living a godly life. We can imitate him. Paul says in Scripture to imitate him, imitate your church leaders as they imitate Christ. That's the key. Anybody who's following Christ, you can learn from them, but ultimately we have to follow Christ. We have to imitate Him. We have to copy what he did and do that in our life. I don't know about you, but I love formulas. Just tell me, step one, two, three, four, five. 
I might be able to put it together at my house if you give me the instructions. But without it, things are not going to work. It's going to fall apart. God has given us a formula. Now, it's not a formula that we ought to twist. It's not a formula that we ought to press into our own mold. But it's real simple. The formula is follow Christ and live as he lived. Now you're saying, well, that's a lot. And it is. That's why you're given this book to study your whole life. It is a lot. But I'm thankful that we know at least that much. And that he's given us all the scriptures to study and figure out what that looks like. Can you imagine trying to do this on your own? Of your own strength? If God said, okay, I've justified you. Now go figure it out. We'd go right back into sin right away. But he's given us an example. He's given us Christ. Well, secondly, to walk in love means that you detest immorality. Number two, you detest immorality. You hate it. You do not want to commit immorality, sexual immorality. What does that have to do with walking in love? Well, you love others so much that you're not going to sin against them. You're not going to sin with them. And you love God so much that you're not going to sin in this way to dishonor him. It's really the opposite of love if you commit immorality. He's going to list some sins, and these are the opposite of love. It's hating others. And even, in a sense, it's hating yourself. So in verses 3 through 4, he's going to list some sins that are the opposite of love, and they're going to deal with sins of conduct and sins of conversation. The two biggest areas where we're tempted. We're tempted in two areas. With our passions, with our body, and our passions with our tongue, with our voice, with our speech. Verse 3, but immorality. There it is right there, immorality. Here this word is porneia. Porneia in the Greek. It's where we get our English word pornography. Now porneia in ancient times is not pornography. But pornography describes what porneia is. Pornography is pictures of porneia. Porneia means unlawful sexual activities, prostitution, unchastity, fornication. To engage in sexual immorality of any kind. Any kind. Anything that you would do with your body in that way, that is a sin. Any kind of sexual activity outside of a committed marriage relationship. Homosexuality, incest, adultery, and premarital sex all considered immorality. It's, it's really a perversion of God's original intention for marriage. You remember in Genesis 2? Man and woman. Man and woman are to be married. And they're to become one flesh. That's good. That's godly. God designed it that way before sin entered the world. And do you know what happened when sin entered the world? It took everything that God said was good and started to twist it. And started to convince, Satan did, convince people, that's good. It's good. The perversion's as good as the thing mentioned in Scripture by God. Sexual immorality is twisting what God has created for good in marriage, and it is a sin. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, flee immorality. The same word here, porneia, flee it, run from it. Like Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife, run from it. Now don't mess around with it. Don't think that you can put your hand in the fire and not get burned. Run from it, flee for your life is the idea. Every other sin, he says, that a man commits is outside the body. Every other sin is outside the body. He's he's drawing a picture here. But the immoral man sins against his own body. And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? It's a category of sin that is completely shameful and dishonoring to God. Paul goes on. That's just the first in his list. He goes on to say, or any impurity. And it's really and here. The first or in your Bible should be an and. There's sexual immorality and there's any impurity. Those are two categories that are closely related. 
What, what is impurity here? Any other perversion of a God-given desire for one's spouse. Any substance that is filthy or dirty. Literally, this word meant in ancient times refuge, waste, sewage. But figuratively, Paul's using it here as a, a moral sewage, a corruption in the heart and the mind. Vileness is how it can be translated. Filthiness. The state of, of moral impurity, especially in relationship to sexual sin. Any thought or deed that's considered by God to be impure. Again, how do we know what's impure? It's in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. This is a sin that continues to plague mankind. Immorality and impurity. Any thought, any deed that's considered by God to be impure. Pornography. Same-sex attraction, a life of lust, and a moral thought filled with sinful fantasies. Sometimes Christians say, well, you know, I didn't do anything, no outward act. I didn't touch. I didn't do the things that over and over come up in Scripture, adultery and such. No, that's not going to cut it. Any impurity. You notice he didn't just say impurity, any impurity. The Bible's not going to let us off the hook. We don't get to go where we want in our minds or on a screen and think that we're somehow free from sin. It's one of the deeds of the flesh, impurity, in Galatians 5.19. Something Paul says we must repent of, must be repented of, 2 Corinthians 12.21. With every kind of impurity, every kind of immorality, we must flee from it. We must repent of it. We must turn from it and go to Christ. And then he gives an or, O-R, or greed. So there's sexual morality, and then there's everything else in the thought life with impurity, or greed. You could just say either one of those is a type of greed. Now he's not talking, I don't think here, about financial greed. That comes up in other scriptures. But the context is all here around immorality. Greed just means an increasing desire for more and more. More and more of the sinful desires of the flesh in this context. Give me more and more. I'm not happy with what I have, God. I want more. I'm going to get more. That's greed. He's described what impurity is. And he's saying, it's just greed. It's just covetousness. We, we could translate it like that, and some versions probably do. Covetousness might be a better translation here. Might be Paul pointing back to the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant. Greed here is an insatiable desire for sexual sins that are never satisfied. A person like this thinks that others exist for their own pleasure and gratification. This is a person who thinks others exist for them and their benefit. And they can take as much as they want. And marriage, husband and wife give of themselves to one another, as God designed it to be. But not with this greed. This greed is taking and taking and taking, not giving. There's no giving. It's just a desire for more and more and more. And Paul says, these things must not even be named among you. It doesn't mean you can't say the words. They're right here in Scripture. You point it out when it's a sin. But it shouldn't be in the church so that someone else could name it about somebody here in our flock, in our congregation. It shouldn't even be present at all. Not even a hint of it. Not even a trace of it among the church body. These sins should be so absent from the body of believers that there's no reason to associate these types of sins with a church. It dishonors God for the church to be associated with such sins. We cannot even tolerate these practices. That's why there's church discipline. That's why Jesus gave it in Matthew 18. How do you deal with that if a believer does do that? Or maybe somebody that's a false believer does that. Church discipline. You go through the steps that Jesus gave. In fact, a major reason that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians was to deal with this problem. They had a member in the church that they were just overlooking. They knew he was in sin. They knew he was committing immorality. 
and they thought they would be graceful. We'll just let it slide. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians, and the first section is to deal with that man and that issue. And he says, you better discipline this man before I get there. You better go through the steps that Jesus gave before I come. It's going to be much worse when I get there, he says. The teaching of the scriptures, the teaching of the church that we should proclaim is clear. It's final. Sexual sin can have no place in the Christian life. This isn't the occasional thought or stumble. This is an ongoing lifestyle here. This is an ongoing sin. And he says that shouldn't even be named as is proper among saints. The standard for God's children is holiness. And none of the things he just listed are proper, are fitting for the holy ones. That's what saints means. He calls us saints if you're a believer in Christ. That's not a statue in a garden that Catholics pray to. Saints just mean believers, the ones who are supposed to be holy. And he's using that term, holy one, to remind them, look, you're supposed to be holy. A holy person doesn't have these sins describing their life. I don't think it was easier back in Paul's day. You know, sometimes we think it was easier. We have the internet today. We have TV. We have billboards. It wasn't easier. It was harder back then. It's hard today, but it was, it was challenging back then. Pornography was painted on the walls of buildings, inside stores, homes. There are little mile markers on the road in the city were pornographic. The Greek god Artemis worshipped in Ephesus, also called Diana, was regarded as a fertility goddess. And there were wicked, immoral gatherings regularly associated with her worship. These Ephesians know what we know. It's everywhere in society. It's everywhere. So don't think it's so hard today. We just can't do it. But back then it was easier. No, it was everywhere. We haven't gotten back to that state. We're headed there. Everybody in the world's trying to take us back to the pagan world. We haven't gotten there yet, but we're headed there. But look, you're holy ones. You've got to detest it. You've got to hate it. You've got to run from it. He goes on, though. Now he's going to talk about sins of conversation. So there's sins of conduct, sins of conversation here. You've got to detest these as well. There must be no filthiness. It's just a word that summarizes everything that's unclean, that's filthy. Probably here, because of the next two words, it has to do with speech. The word means an act of defying social or moral standards with resulting disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. It has that element of shame here. Don't let there be filthiness in the Christian life. Really, in regards to vulgarity and obscene speech. Filthiness of speech. A vulgarity. Potty talk. Sexual innuendo. It was popular a few years ago for pastors to go on and record themselves. Pastors, famous pastors, to record themselves cussing in their car, in their sermons. They even call themselves the cussing pastor. Now thankfully some of them have been disqualified from ministry. And others are still supported by the seeker-friendly movement. There's no place in the Christian life. It's clear here in Scripture. We already saw at the end of chapter 4 that we're to be careful with our speech. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. But here he gets very specific. No vulgarity. Is your talking with others the way that God would want it to be? Sometimes we think cuss words are just, you know, that's just a moral framework. We don't have to live by that moral framework. We're Christians. What is a word, you know? Society gives a word a meaning. We don't care. Words have meaning. And people hear the words you say. And they will know. That guy calls himself a Christian but talks like that. And certainly in the church, has no place amongst believers. And silly talk. This is foolish talk here in verse 4. So you've got filthy talk. Now you've got silly talk. Foolish and stupid talk. That's literally a definition in the Greek dictionary. It's probably silly talk about sexual matters, given the context here. Silly talk. About things that shouldn't be discussed. 
that your conversations with others have silly talk, foolish talk, talk about things you shouldn't be saying. Because you know the problem with foolish and silly talk is it takes the place of important things you need to be talking about. It takes the place of real talking with believers. There's too much, let's not say filthiness and silly talk, let's just say there's too much wasting of time when we talk to other believers. We might call it just wasting time talk. Back to Frank's class about time management this morning. Small talk. Small talk's okay, but once we get going, let's, let's get into some things. How's your walk with Christ? How can I pray for you? Let's not waste our time with silly talk. Put away foolish things. Let's get to the point to help and edify and build up. And he goes on here to coarse jesting. So there's filthiness, silly talk, just, you know, silly talk about sexual things mostly. And then coarse jesting here. Ribald humor, dirty jokes. Humor is fine in the Christian life, but not when it pertains to these things. These are not things we laugh about. These are not things we joke about. I remember when I was a Christian, right when I was saved, not when I was a Christian, I remember when I was first a Christian, um, one of the big issues that struck me was vulgarity and dirty jokes. Because it just was everywhere in the world. And everybody who called themselves Christian seemed to be doing it too. But I knew it was wrong. By that point, God had changed my heart, and I, I just couldn't, I didn't even know what to say to these people. Back then, you know, it was the right thing to tell them to stop. Nowadays, you'll be, you'll be telling everybody to stop. You go to the grocery store, you have a big gathering of maybe unbelievers. There are going to be people talking like this. Best thing to do is just walk away. Just not even deal with it. It's to make jokes about sexual immorality at the expense of others. Maybe because they've sinned. Or maybe just to make dirty jokes that have no reason at all, just to be funny. Has no place in the Christian life, Paul says. Coarse jesting has no place. It's rough, coarse. It's not right. And he says that. He goes on to say again, which are not fitting. The conduct was not proper, and the speech here is not fitting as well. It's inappropriate. Walking in love means that you do things that are appropriate, that are proper. Not according to society, but according to the Scriptures. That's walking in love. What Paul's describing here, that people do, that unbelievers do, is walking in lust. Walking in lustful thoughts, lustful actions. Their whole world is greed and lust. Their jokes are about it. Their speech is about it. Their actions are about that. That's the world standards. That's not godly standards. It's not biblical standards. Sometimes Christians get a bad rap. They say, well, you're just moral. You're trying to be holier than thou. You might even hear that as a parent, you're just trying to impose your morals upon your children. Well, I am if they're biblical. What other morals are they? They're either going to get the world's morals or the biblical morals. So teach them the Bible. We're not trying to be holier than anybody. We're just trying to be holy before God. Because he's called us to be that. Let the world think what they want. They're going to say this more and more. As Christians point out sin in the world, they're going to say it. You heard about the basketball player that wouldn't take the knee and wouldn't support an organization that has unbiblical beliefs. Well, he's getting all kinds of bad press. He's just ignorant. He doesn't understand. He's using Christianity to just mask his hate or whatever. No, you've got to do what God says. Though man be called a liar, God is not. He tells the truth. And true Christians care about God's standards. We care nothing for the world's standards. We care nothing for the world's standards unless they're based in Scripture, which we know they're not. So we follow God. If our master commands us to do it, then we do it. Can you imagine a slave in the ancient world doing his own thing? Just going off, doing his own thing around the house? Deciding that he was going to take charge. God's our master. And we're a slave. We've been bought from the slave market. We're slaves of Christ. There's a good book called Slave of Christ. We're slaves of Christ. We've got to do what he says. Instead of all of that, Paul says, give thanks. But rather than all of that, giving of thanks. It seems weird that he's saying that here, right? But he's saying, look, with your speech, instead of 
coarse jesting and filthy talk and dirty jokes, vulgarity, obscene speech. Use your mouth for the right thing, which is to give thanks to God. You know, the sin in Romans 1, that God keeps giving them over to further sin. You know what their first sin is? They didn't give thanks to their creator. That's our very basic thing that we can do. Give thanks, he says. Redemption should be a motivation for thankfulness. Stop using your mouth to sin, Paul says, and give thanks to God. His good gifts, including God honoring sexuality and the bonds of marriage. Give thanks for that. There's nothing wrong with that. The perversions that he listed, though, there's a lot wrong with that. In fact, that leads us into our third point here. To walk in love means that you heed the warning. If you're walking in love, you remember this warning. You remember what the Bible teaches about these sins. You don't just say, I'm going to focus on the positive and never think about the negative. No, Paul says to believers here, they need to remember. For this you know with certainty, because he told them. He told them in the three years he taught them. You already know this, Paul says. I told you, but I'm going to remind you again. Because that's what scripture does. It reminds us over and over, be careful. Watch out. Be on the alert. That's what Jesus told his disciples. Be on the alert. Peter, be on the alert, he says, for the devil. He's prowling around you. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, same sins that he listed back in verse 3, but now he's changed them into a person. So instead of just immorality, it's an immoral person. He's attached the sin to the person, meaning their lifestyle is immorality. Their lifestyle is impure, covetous. Who is an idolater? Now we're getting to the heart of it, aren't we? You know what all these sins have in common? It's about you. It's about yourself. It's about man-centered worship. And that's called idolatry. Idolatry is not just a golden statue that people bow down to. Idolatry ultimately is about self. Man-centered focus on what man wants. Even bowing down to a statue is so that people can get what they want from that false god. That's why they did it in the ancient world. That's why they do it today. It's idolatry. If sexual immorality has mastered you, then you're worshiping yourself. You're worshiping an idol. Whatever masters you is your God. So if God's bought you, if God's mastered you, then he's your God and follow him. If sexual sin has mastered you, then you follow that and that is your God. That's the truth of it, Paul says. It's idolatry. You worship yourself, you worship your pleasures. These people have... No inheritance, he says. They do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. God doesn't just wink at sin. He doesn't just overlook it. He doesn't just say, it's okay, you can do what you want. Everybody's going to heaven someday. You're all going to get a resurrected body and be with Jesus. Well, we might as well throw this whole book away. People believe that right now, but it's not true. Paul says multiple times, this is one of them, that certain people who live this lifestyle, which means they're not saved because they're living that lifestyle, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And if you call yourself a Christian, Ephesians, Grace Bible Church attendees, if you call yourself a Christian, but you live like this, you won't be in the kingdom of God. You're not saved. God will judge. Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Heed the warning. Serious. It's a serious warning. If you take your salvation seriously as a Christian, this is one of the many motivations that you've got to have to be sanctified, to walk in love, to live a holy life. We're motivated by the love of Christ. We're motivated by all the things that God has done for us. We're also motivated, right, by the stick, not just the carrot. That's why Jesus keeps preaching on hell in the Gospels. We need both the carrot and the stick because we're lazy. I want to go back into our old sins. Let's close with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What does it mean to walk in love? It means to be sanctified. It means to be following Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 3. For this is the will of God. I wonder what God wants me to do with my life as a Christian. Here it is. Big sign pointing right here. Here's the will of God for you. Your sanctification. Your growth in godliness. Well, what's that, Paul? I don't understand. 
That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is pagan when you run off with your lusts in passion and do whatever you want. Be sanctified. Be holy. Keep away from that. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. There's a lot of adultery that goes on within churches. Amongst professing believers. And you're not just sinning against yourself and sinning against God, but you're sinning with other people and bringing them into it with adultery, he says. And God's going to avenge that. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, there's that word again, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this, this teaching on sanctification in Scripture, is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You know what living a lifestyle like this is? It's rejecting God. It doesn't matter if a person says, I'm a Christian. They're rejecting God if they live a life like that. That's what Paul says. Because the scripture says believers shouldn't do that, don't do that. And if they do, they better repent right away so that it doesn't describe their life. But there is hope, isn't there? There is hope. There's hope for the believer who repents. God will cleanse us. There's hope for the unbeliever who's listening today. The unbeliever who says, this describes my life. There's hope in Christ. He's been mentioned multiple times already in this passage. Christ. He's the one who gave himself on the cross so that people could be saved. People like you and I. We're sitting here today not because of what we did, but because of what Christ did. He died on the cross. He paid for all of these sins. These are not the unforgivable sin. We have a whole doctrinal statement in our church on these issues. And we got to be clear because the world is so confused. Liberal churches are confused. We're clear, but at the end of that statement, we say that there's grace. We believe here that there is grace. It's the name of our church. Because God's grace will cleanse these things. We'll, we'll put them as far as the east is from the west. There is salvation in Christ, but you've got to turn from these sins. You've got to admit that you need a Savior. You've got to turn to the Christ described in Scripture. So let's live holy lives. Let's walk in love. And let's completely cut ourselves off. Let's abstain from these sins that he mentions here as believers. Father, we ask your help in this. The world is uh, always pulling at us, tempting us. The devil wants to see a, a Christian fall, and they want to see lots of uh, false Christians in the church. And we pray that you would make us a holy people here, that we would obey this teaching, that we would work diligently every day to defeat sin, to kill it, to get it out of our life, out of our heart. We want to be used by you for a good and godly purpose, and to do that, we need to live holy lives. Teach us, guide us, motivate us, and help us all through the love of Christ to walk as he walked. We ask this in your precious son's name. Amen.